Hey everybody, welcome to the No Pants Required Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Mann, and today I am wearing sort of like this stretchy pant. It's not quite a yoga pant, but it's also not pajamas, but it's really not meant to go outside at all. And my guest for today's episode is Pamela Cannon. Pamela has spent virtually her entire publishing career at Penguin Random House or some version thereof, starting off as a publicist and soon thereafter becoming an editor. Spoiler alert, Pamela is my editor. She has edited two People I Want to Punch in the Throat books and the new upcoming Midlife Bites. Pamela falls squarely in the cat camp. Sorry, dog peeps. And she is a sucker for any adorable animal, story, or photo in her social media feed. She tends to read fiction for pleasure, mostly historical, which balances out the ongoing search for current meaningful nonfiction in her day job. And ultimately, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, she wants to be transported, entertained, lost in another world, all while learning something new about a subject she might never have considered. Hey, you guys, welcome to No Pants Required. And today I have my amazing editor, Pamela Cannon. Pamela has been my editor for several years now. I She works for Penguin Random House. And I think when I first started with, with her, it was just Random House. <laughs> so, so it's been a while. She works actually with Ballantine is the imprint. And we together have done three books now. It'll be three books in January. The newest one, Midlife Bites, comes out in January. And she'd kill me if I don't tell you. It's available for pre-order right now. So just pause and go ahead and pre-order that book and then come on back and listen to our conversation. So welcome, Pamela. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Normally, when I'm sitting down with Pamela, I'm always like, I don't know what the hell to do. Like, I can't figure this out. So, so hopefully today we'll have a very, a very different kind of conversation. So one of the things I just want to dive right in, because I think if I was not a writer, I would either want to be a literary agent or I'd want to be an editor. And I've already talked to my literary agent, so I know how to do all that. But now I want to know, like, if I, if I couldn't have done this, how could I have been an editor? How did you get started doing what you're doing? Sure. Well, I think most people start out the editorial track as an editorial assistant, where it's a tough job. You got to toil for a bunch of years working for one or two people and is a lot of grunt work. You know, you're reading tons of manuscripts that are rejected. You're kind of looking at what your boss is looking for and how they're editing and trying to learn the, the art and the craft of editing and trying to figure out what your taste is. What do you like to read? What do you think other people will like to read. You don't want it to be too narrow. You want it to be broad enough, which is, you know, one of the reasons I think when we connected on people I want to punch in the throat, I automatically got it. And I was like, oh, my friends would totally get this too. And you know that from your community and your online followers that, you know, it's really everyone's an editor essentially because everyone has an opinion. You like something, you don't like something. Why do you like it? So that's the first and foremost, you have to kind of know your gut. And you start off with, well, I like this. I wonder if other people would like this. And so to become an editor, I think you, you know, I was an English major in college, which there aren't that many of them anymore. (laughs) There aren't a ton of opportunities. I think a lot of people go into teaching or, you know, publishing, but an editor is really sort of the first 
wave that a book takes um, in trying to find its audience. So a lot of books are submitted to me by agents whom you spoke with. Your book was submitted by your agent, Aaron, to me. And so I'm reading, there's a lot of competition that's hitting my desk. The categories that I tend to acquire in, and every editor kind of has specific categories. There aren't too many what we call generalists out there, which do anything. But my categories are nonfiction. I tend to do a lot of essays, collections, memoirs, some celebrity, a little bit of self-help in the narrative space, um, kind of like Midlife Bites, what that is. And uh, I also do cookbooks and lifestyle. So I have a little bit of a range. I did not go the normal route, which is, like I said, as an editorial assistant and sort of climb, very slowly climb that ladder. Instead, I started in publishing on the publicity side. When I was in college, I had done an internship in L.A. at a... um, a public relations firm. I was an English major and I kind of put the two things together and I was like, publishing, publicity, let me work in the publicity department at a publishing house. So that was my first job out of college at a division of Simon & Schuster Publishing. Then I moved over to Random House, which had not yet been merged together with the Penguin part. And I started off on the publicity side. So I was working with authors after they were acquired and edited but it gave me a sense of like, I knew who could, who was promotable, who was, you know, good on camera, who was funny, who could write an op-ed piece. So as an editor, at one point, the way that I actually became an editor, Jen, I don't know if you know this, but I was working on the publicity side for a book called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barron. And it was the story of Savannah that became a movie that Clint Eastwood directed. And it was Jude Law's like first big role as the hunky, cute, murdering guy. I was going to Savannah a lot doing publicity on the book. And I would meet like Good Morning America down there when they would shoot. And it was just this phenomenon, like the book completely... Not that it put Savannah on the map, it was clearly on the map, but it, it kind of drove tourism there like crazy in the early 90s. And so I'd go down there a lot and I stopped into a restaurant to eat one day and there was a really funny hostess and she was giving me cheese biscuits and hoe cakes and all these yummy Southern treats. And as I walked out, I saw that she had this kind of self-published cookbook. It was spiral bound. I looked at it. It was filled with errors, but I brought it back up to Random House and I went into my publisher at the time who was John Barron's editor. And I said, I know I've never edited anything, but I really like to cook. And could we do this cookbook? Could we republish it here? We'll clean it up and, and I could work on it. And she, I guess she kind of felt like she wanted to keep me happy. And I had done a lot of work on Midnight. So she's like, sure, give it a try. And that was Paula Dean's first book. So Paula oh Dean was at the restaurant. It was the Lady and Sons was her restaurant and nobody knew her at that point. And so that was my first acquisition. And, and as I like to tell people, I've been in a sophomore slump ever since. But <laughs> yeah, so I kind of went, I didn't go the typical route. I went adjacent. And once I tried that, I was like, oh, I kind of like this. And I'd been doing publicity for probably five, six years but I wasn't running a department. I was still a little bit too young. and But I really got a taste for this editing thing. And I told my publisher, I said, I'd love to be an editor. Can, can I move? And she's like, well, let's see what you buy over the next six months. She made me keep my publicity job and 
try to get myself into the editorial avenue. And so I would talk to the agents that I knew from publicity and say, hey, I'm buying. Do you have anything? And, you know, I bought a couple of cookbooks. I bought a short story collection. I think I bought an essay collection. I bought a few things. And she was like, all right, let's give you a try. And she eventually moved me over to the editorial side. So it was pretty cool and it stuck. So that was sort of how I got into things, which again, is not the typical way that most people do, but I knew I loved publishing. I wanted to try something new. I was getting a little bored on the publicity side. And so, yeah, it was pretty great that I was able to kind of make that happen. And that was, you know, almost uh, 20 years ago. So it's been a long run since then. I had no idea about Paula Dean, though. That's crazy. And yeah. I think it's really cool that like, because I'm, you know, I'm, I have a foot in self-publishing and a foot in traditional publishing and I do both. And so many times I hear self-published people say they're always surprised because you bought spending the holidays with people I want to punch in the throat, which I had originally self-published. And when I tell people that they're like, oh, you know, no editor buys self-published books. Like they just don't. And here's two that you bought. You bought Paula Deen's for, you know, and right. mine. And the fact that you could kind of see that, they, like, I, I think that's so interesting that you kind of, oh, wow, that you just like launched Paula Deen into the stratosphere. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's I think nuts. Paula was really just selling her books out of a restaurant. She wasn't even selling them off Amazon or anything back Nothing then. Nothing like that. Like the late 90s and, or mid 90s. And um, yeah, so she she wasn't even doing it the way you're doing it. And you know, I do think there was a time it, as an editor at a traditional publishing house, we have to look, it's, it's a very kind of um, careful thing we need to consider with someone who's been self-published because you want to make sure that there's still enough people and consumers to attract that, you know, if she sold 20,000 copies on her own, hmm, do we think we can, you know, push that? How much can we push that by? So we're looking for that sweet spot sweet spot of being established, but also mm -hmm. having room to grow like we did with you. And so not everyone mm -hmm. has that. Sometimes they've kind of blown up already and, and you're not, as the traditional publisher, you're not going to capture that much more. Or sometimes they're just on the cusp or sometimes it just ain't going to happen because all their cousins were buying their book and not that many other people. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's neat. I really, I no. see there's a secret. I, I'm always trying to find people's secrets. So there's something I didn't know. That's crazy. So when you say like you buy people's books, like, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Like I know that agents bring you books. Do you ever get a book that's not agented? Do you ever see those? How does that work? Sure. So sometimes I'll read a magazine article, I'll watch a documentary, and I can get to a book that way. And I reach out directly to the author. And inevitably, at the same time I'm reaching out to them, an agent is often has seen that same article or documentary and is reaching out. An example of that happened with a book that I acquired and edited called Empty Mansions, The Mysterious Life of Hugette Clark and, and the Spending of a Great American Fortune. And my husband actually was watching CNN and he said, oh, come here. This is really actually kind of interesting. And we were watching it together. It was a story about an heiress who had these three huge, unbelievable homes, one in Santa Barbara, one in Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and one in New Canaan, which is fairly close. It's like one or two towns over to where I live in Connecticut. And the person who was being interviewed was a reporter for a local newspaper. 
And he, it weirdly turned out that he lived in my town, strangely, coincidentally mm. enough. He, he and his wife, also a journalist, were looking to buy a house. They were going online, uh, looking at different, um, different types of real estate listings. And as a lark, he looked up the most expensive home in Fairfield County. And it listed this home in New Canaan. And it was this unbelievable mansion that was purchased in 1961 and no one had ever moved in. And he was like, what is this? He put on his like, you know, journalist reporter's cap. He drove over down the road to the mansion. There was a little guardhouse out front and a man comes out, little old man comes out and he goes, what is this house? And he goes, well, you know, the owner, the owner's still alive. I've never met her, but here's an article on her. And he had a clipping from the Daily News that he showed Bill Deadman, the author and the journalist. And it said how this woman, Huguette Clark, had just sold a Stradivarius violin for $3 million. And she was sort of this mysterious person. And Bill said, is that a man? Is that a woman? Who is Huguette? And he just got this bug. He was bitten. He wanted to know this story. And he chased it. And it was sort of like his his rosebud. And so he found out this incredible story. Her father was, she died in 2013, I believe. Her father was born in 1867. He was almost 70 years old when he had her. And he was one of these wealthy, wealthy copper barons out West. And he didn't have the pedigree, but he had the money and he tried to buy his way in with, you know, the Morgans and everybody in the Gilded Age and all these fine families. And they kind of wouldn't have him. He bought a seat in the Senate. (laughs) He bought his own Senate seat in Montana. And it's this incredible story of this earned wealth in America. And there were no other heirs after her. And what happened and all these people kind of crawled out of the woodwork. She left her nurse $30 million. She left her accountant. And it was all very suspect when she died in 2013. And it all made for this incredible, incredible story called Empty Mansions, which I recommend for anybody who likes stories about luxury and wealth and mystery. And the best line in the book was, you know, about basically, you know, what eccentricity is not a diagnosis. She was an eccentric woman. She chose to spend her wealth in interesting and strange ways, denying certain things and over abundantly providing for others. So it was a great story. And that started off just as this piece, this glimpse of a mansion in New Canaan that hadn't been lived in since 1961. She never moved in, but she still held on to it. Well, so I was actually, I was at your office about when that book came out. And so you had stacks of it everywhere and you were like, oh, just grab a book, Jen, you'll love this book. I, it's a super thick book. I mean, it's a big book. And I devoured that book in like three days. And it's still like, I still think about her and like her life because it was a story nobody had ever heard of before. It was, it's, you guys, you have to read this book. It's just, it's crazy. And And it seems so historical, but she was living like in like the 2000s. Yeah. Wasn't it like, was it her who, like, wasn't her dad like in the civil war or something even or something? Yeah, he was born in 1867. Like it was crazy. Yeah. So it was just, it was such a crazy book. It was And she, she makes these, the houses are furnished and like all this stuff. It was really, it was a fascinating book. And so that one just was a news article you saw and and you just tracked this guy down and said, let's write a book together. (laughs) 
So I tracked him down and I said, I reached out to him through his newspaper and, and most people are absolutely willing to, you know, I've done that a bunch of times are willing to have a conversation with you. Sometimes they'll say, Oh, I'm also talking to agents. Let me get my agent and I'll send them your way. Fine. And sometimes I help them find an agent because Mm -hmm. I want them to feel they're fairly represented. And, And as you know, from your conversations with Aaron, an agent can help both sides. If there's ever issues or problems or, or you know, come up with ideas, um, a good agent can help strengthen a situation. So it will happen that way where I'll, I'll find something short form or maybe I'm listening to a podcast and it's like this could be long form. So we're always thinking about what kinds of other vehicles could, be, could become a, you know, 80,000 word book, a long form vehicle. Is there yeah. enough there? Can we flesh it out? What hasn't been told? So I'm, I'm looking at all different kinds of an article in a magazine. You know, can we flesh it out? Is there enough there? And oftentimes if the story or the person that they're writing about is interesting enough and there's enough backstory, it many times can become so much from the New Yorker or Vanity Fair can go on to become or New York Magazine, a, a bigger book piece. That's okay. Well, see, there you go, you guys. If you want an editor to discover you, and now it's TikTok. Right? I have to figure. I have to. I have a twelve-year-old and a fifteen-year-old. They're much more on TikTok and Snapchat, thank God, than I am. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that. I know that books can really blow up on TikTok, like they can be marketed, but it has to be authentic and genuine, and it can't be like a publishing house behind it. Like it's got to be the author who kind of drops something and it works. But I'm yeah. not sure how to go from TikTok to book. There, no. YouTube was a big, you know, there was a big window like a de- five, 10 years ago where like YouTubers had their own imprint at Simon & Schuster. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And a handful of them worked. A lot of them didn't because not everything works. You know, some people want free short bites, visual, that's it, or a podcast, or, you know, some people want the book experience. They're in for the read. They want it on their shelf or they're, they, you know, commute and they want it on their Kindle or, you know, whatever device they're reading it on. So we always look at sort of, we'd like to think that things can translate and work, but not everything does for various formats. You really, sometimes you take a chance, it doesn't work. And sometimes it it works really well. I think, I think what's behind everything, whether it's a magazine article, YouTube, podcast, authenticity, you know, TikTok, I think, you know, readers and consumers of entertainment and information can sense bullshit. So that's what they want. I think that's why you work because you're the real deal, you know, and whatever category you're you're bringing this entertainment or information to them in, it's got to be authentic and real because they can sense if it's not, if it's manufactured. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. What do you think about, though, like ghostwriters? Because I was talking to Jen Lancaster, and that's sort of where she's moved into now is ghostwriting. And she's ghostwriting for, like, she signs NDAs, but she said, like, one person has given permission to talk about it. And he's like a reality TV show star. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some of these TikTokers or YouTubers or whatever who maybe are not used to writing, they could hire a ghostwriter and work with them. Do you ever work with ghostwriters? I do, depending on the project. And I've actually, in between gigs when I was freelance, I actually did some collaborating and ghostwriting as well on projects. So I've I've been a little bit on the other side of the desk for it. But yeah, I uh, oftentimes when I work with people 
who are not writers by trade, let's say celebrities mm-hmm. that are in the entertainment space or chefs or, you know, just people who aren't a writer per se, they need some help. And sometimes collaborator, whether that's a ghostwriter who doesn't really get any of the credit and you never see their name, maybe somewhere in the acknowledgements or an actual writer who they work with and they do get like cover credit. You'll see, you know, Jen Man with Pam Cannon or Jen Man and Pam Cannon. That's how much the person helped mm-hmm. you, depending on it's an and or with. And Is that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, with, with they get less credit and they get a lot more credit. I see. Okay. <laughs> but that collaborator can sometimes be very helpful. And I often think, you know, Doing a book, and I think you can probably speak to this, is a collaboration, even if you're the only writer on it. It's a collaboration between, I'd like to think, the writer and the editor. Sometimes there's an, an additional collaborator who's helping, the ghostwriter or the, or the researcher or collaborator. And collectively, as a team, we're all getting there. And we all are, are kind of approaching it from different angles. You know, you, you are closest to it as the writer. It's your life that you lived. It's your experiences. I'm trying to pull that from you in a way that a reader can approach in an accessible way that has good information and storytelling that you can provide them with. And the writer and collaborator is trying to synthesize what you, the, the subject, and me, the editor, both want and try to deliver that. So it's sort of a symbiosis and it's a a team effort and everybody kind of plays their part in it. When it's just the writer and the editor, it's a bit more intimate in that way, the back and forth of what we're looking for, you know, what you deliver to me. I said, this is really good. Can we do more of this, less of this? And we didn't cover this at all. You know, that could be interesting. And so it's a lot of kind of back and forth and coming together, like for your new book that's coming up, I think it was a different experience for you probably than the first few books in the fact that I think you were really trying to give substantial information and hit certain tent poles, categories and areas that your community that follow you on Midlife Bites wanted to know about. So we had to really figure out, okay, what are the subjects that, that people most want, care about, want to talk about, want to read about? And you did some kind of research into that different from, I think, your other essays. And, and you know, if you want to talk about that, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but it was different, this book, right? Oh, it was, yeah. Well, you know, before, I think with the people I want to punch in the throat books, I kind of have a plan and I always kind of know what, I, like, those are stories, I'm, I'm always writing true stories and so they've already happened. So I know where I'm going and what I'm going to do with those. And I, and I feel pretty comfortable writing those. And so with those, it wasn't as much, you know, I, I I didn't need as much guidance, I guess, and as much handholding. And then with Midlife Bites, Midlife Bites actually came out of, I wrote a blog post and about how I was feeling about, you know, hitting midlife. And Pamela read it on my blog and sent me an email and was like, uh, what are you doing? This is your book. <laughs> like, what do you, what, stop crying and start writing. <laughs> and so, and at that point, because I had not sort of conceived of this book on my, of, you know, in my own head, I didn't know quite what I was doing. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. So I really had to work closely with Pamela to sort of come up with just, like you said, the tent poles, you know, and then I have this group and we're both in the group and every now and again, she'd like leave, you know, somebody would have a comment and she'd like, great idea, Jen. <laughs> you know? so, so then I would know kind of where we needed to go. But yeah. And I think this time it had to be, I mean, I'm always pretty authentic, but it had to be more vulnerable, I guess. I, I can put up some pretty 
big boundaries with my life a lot of times, but this time I had to really kind of let that down. And I think you were very helpful with that to kind of push me and say, come on, Jen, you know, you can, you got more than this. Like you can do something else here. And so, so this time, yeah, it was a little, it was, that's why it took me so long to write it. <laughs> it just was well, constantly, I felt like I was constantly sort of fighting myself, but, but that's where I think it was good that we had already done two books together because, you know, part of the relationship between, you know, an author and, and their editor and author and their agent it's almost like it's it's like a it's like a dating kind of thing almost like you have to have like you have to understand each other and know each other pretty well and and so by because this was our third book together i really felt like you could say like i know what you can do now like you can do this like go this way and that was helpful cuz i think maybe not if i was working with someone brand new to me i'm not sure we would have got the same product yeah do you know, I does that make sense Absolutely. I definitely pushed you. I know that. Sorry. And, but I pushed no, you because I'm I, glad you did. I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's funny. I was, uh, during COVID, I was watching one of my authors who is a very well-known celebrity. She was doing a bookstore event virtually and being interviewed. And she kept, she, at least two or three different times, she said how scared she was of her editor as I'm watching and then named me. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Yay. I mean, she's wonderful and great, but I was like, and I sent her a bottle of champagne and I was like, note to self, don't scare authors. That was my note to her. So um, anyway, but I think maybe I push too hard sometimes, but I push knowing, I know that you guys have it in you to get there. It may not be obvious. Mm -hmm. It may not be straightforward. You may have to make some mistakes, but ultimately you get there. There are authors that don't get there and I know who they are and I know I've tried to push them. They can't. And I let go because we can only get so far. But in your case and with this other author, you know, you have the goods, you have the ability, but sometimes it's especially writing autobiographical books or pieces or essays. It's incredibly personal and difficult and vulnerable and when you're, you know, sharing this, you know, whether you're a celebrity, whether someone who has a following and, and many people know you, what I always tell them in the writing process before the public has seen the book is cast your net wide. Pretend you're writing this just for yourself and no one else is going to read this. Go to that place, go hard, go deep. We can always pull it back. If you think it's too vulnerable, it's too revealing, you know, you're talking too much about another person and their career or something, we can scale back. But to serve the book and the story, start wide, go deep. We can always rein it in. That's kind of my thinking. And we do. And we get to the place, you know, books go through legal reads. They go through everything. Yours did. And, you know, most books I work on do. And, you know, we never want to put an author in a place that they're uncomfortable. I'm never going to force you to say you have to leave this in if it makes you or someone else wildly uncomfortable. If there's a reason that I feel it needs to be in because it serves the story, it serves the book, it serves motivation, we need to you know, make it more nuanced and figure out a way that you can be okay with it, keeping it in, that it serves its purpose, but maybe we adjust it slightly. So everything's a little bit of a dance. It's a little bit of choreography, as you know, mm -hmm. back and forth. And that's kind of how the process works, I think, uh, you know, with a good editor-writer relationship. Well, and I think it comes down to trust too. I mean, there were times where 
I've said this before on interviews and things that I think this version of the book that's going to come out is probably the fourth version that I wrote because I feel like, you know, every time it was almost due, I'd have an idea of where I was like, I want to go this direction instead. (laughs) And so I would email Pamela and I'd be like, hey, so I had this idea and I think we should do this, and but I need another month. (laughs) So she'd be like, and she was like, okay, cool. Try it. Let's see what we got, you know? And you know, and I, and I appreciated that. So I'm sorry, this one found you scary. I don't, I would like to go on the record. I did not find you scary. And okay. I feel like you're like a coach. You're, you know, it's like, I need to be, I am a person who needs to be pushed. Like I, I could live in my comfort zone for the rest of my life. And so I needed that. And I'm glad you did that. So thank you. And I'm not scared, but if it will get me a bottle of champagne, then I will say I'm scared. There we go. Listen, I try try to scare my kids on a daily basis and they just roll their eyes at me. So how bad can I be? (laughs) Like, I'm sorry that they find you scary, but I, I, you're, you're, uh, your bark is wor- is is worse than your bite. Is that what they say? Is that you know? We'll stick with that. I don't know what it is, but no, I don't. I don't. That's funny that I'm scared of my editor. Then you probably need a new editor if you're scared of your editor. So. Now, what what does hurt though? What it what does hurt me is when uh-huh. when when you cut stuff when you're like this chapter can go and I'm like oh <laughs> repurpose repurpose you're on seventeen different formats you can use it for something I know I'm not like cutting it out of your life entirely no. you'll you'll move no. it from here to there. I don't throw anything away. <laughs> so exactly. I always joke that I still have, I mean, I haven't blogged in years and I still have 300 blog drafts in my draft folder that have never been finished. Cause I, who knows, I might come back to those, you know, toilet, you know, potty training book. stories. Yeah. Something I might need that. So no, I don't throw anything away. So those chapters are, they're safe, but they're just like, Oh, Oh, okay. I see why you cut that, but Oh, ouch. <laughs> I know it's Sophie's choice. I know it's ugly and those are tough ones, but <laughs> I hope that in the end, you know, scary, mean, whatever words you want to use. I hope that in the end, as is always my objective, that it served the book, that cutting that chapter yes. was because this one's just sticking out. It doesn't feel like it's jiving with the rest and there's a reason we cut it. Or you kind of cover the, some of the same territory in an earlier uh, essay, even though you love like where it went later on. So mm-hmm. I like to think that I'm always looking at something both as the in the finite and as a larger whole. I have to look at it, you know, as the single essay and has the essay work in the context of the whole collection and in the context of the other books Jen's written before. Mm-hmm. So we always want to kind of give something while people love you for your style, your content, who you are, we want to always give them something fresh, but that still feels Jen man. And that's, I think, right. what you're looking for with this book. Right. Well, and that's the thing I tell people too, like whenever I'm teaching classes or something to to uh, authors, people who want to publish books or get published, you know, I'm like, this is why you have an editor because it is hard to take a step back. You know, this is, especially if you're writing memoir or something like that, that's so personal, but even fiction. I mean, my, I, my fiction, I'm, I'm, it's a baby too, you know? And so it's like, mm-hmm. and you, but you need that editor to sort of help you see the bigger picture. Cause it's really hard to see the big picture when you're the one doing it. For sure. And, and, and it's your story. You're even, you're so close to it. So, you know, I, I'm the one who can say, well, this isn't, you know, I'm fresh eyes on the material to say, this isn't that compelling, even though maybe to you in your personal life, it was such a big thing. It's like, what, what, what is really big to the readers is this other thing. And then I think if I can get you to kind of 
look at it from a different perspective, not just your own, the person in it, but as the bigger reader experiencing it for the first time, you know, that's again, pushing a little bit out of comfort zone. That's helpful and ultimately serves the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you mostly do cookbooks and nonfiction and are you, you said you like to cook. What's your favorite thing to cook? What do you, what, what especially during COVID, well, everybody's, like everybody's baking. Everybody's yeah. baking during COVID. Are you baking? Are you a baker or a cook? Cook, cook, definitely. Because I, I hate like precision is involved with baking with when you cook something, you can still kind of save it or correct it or alter it. Once something goes in the oven, like that's it for baking. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. I, I find that my pastry and baking authors are very regimented type A's and the chefs like they're, they're incredibly dedicated, but they're probably a little bit more fun. So, but I did my share of stress baking, uh, cooking and eating, of course, during COVID. And I didn't do sourdough because I just was like, that's too much of a cliche. Everyone's doing it. I did a, a shit ton of banana bread because they're right now there's like 10, you know, rotting bananas in my kitchen that I have to get rid of. But yeah, uh, I, I'm a person who just, um, I always, marvel that people who could plan their week of eating and like grocery shop and plan out their menus like that. Cause I'm like, okay, it's what day are we? It's, it's Thursday. What do I feel like tonight? What's yeah. in the house? What do I have last night? For me, it's still very spontaneous. Like that day, what I'm making, I keep a ton of stuff in like the freezer and pantry. So I can always kind of pull from it. And I hate going to the supermarket, even though we all do it. But so, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm a pasta, chicken, shrimp, you know, the, the, the mainstays. I have kids who still like only eat freaking like buttered noodles at, again, 12 and 15. Uh, I, I don't know where I went wrong with them. They did not develop palates properly. They still eat like four-year-olds. But I'm hoping that changes when they maybe go to college one day. And so, Right. You know, I know. My freezer is still full of like... To figure no, out what's right? No, right? No, no. My freezer is still full of dino nuggets at this point. Yeah. Like, and you know, oh, and I'm just like, she literally asked me to buy those in the last year, and I was like, again, so. I blame TikTok. I think it's on TikTok. I All think right. the dino <laughs> nuggets are on TikTok. I finally joined TikTok so I could see what the heck is going on over there because I, I think everything that they want is coming from there. So I'm trying to figure it out. Do you, do you actually do the recipes? Like, you have Rachel Ray as one of your authors. Like, do you do Rachel right. Ray? recipes and things so like I that her recipes. like one time we were we were texting and and I was like what are you making for dinner she's like cashew chicken shrimp toast cashew chicken like this whole she's up in the middle of nowhere upstate New York in the Adirondacks she was making this whole Chinese menu just for she and her husband for dinner and I was like I want that now. And I was like, so she texts me a recipe and I was like, I'm going to literally buy the ingredients for that now. But yeah, so what I do is they usually have a writer. Uh, a chef will usually have a writer that works with them to put the cookbook together. They develop the recipes themselves usually, but the writer will kind of sit with them and say, how much garlic powder, how much this, how much that, that will help work on head notes, introduction, the method, cookbooks are a lot about consistency. So your recipes all have a standardization to them so that the user can follow them easily. So then what I'll do is once I get them in, I make sure that that, you know, standardization and consistency exists. I'll edit head notes and introduction a bit and I'll spot test. It's like, oh, you know, I feel like making garlic chicken tonight. So, oh, she's got a recipe for that. Okay. I have all this stuff at home. So I'll spot test here and there. 
on occasion, I found like, ooh, too much salt, not enough salt. Or wait, you said four tablespoons of garlic? Do you mean four teaspoons? Like, that's a lot. <laughs> you know, technically, contractually, all recipes are supposed to be have been tested by either the chef or a recipe tester once they oh. come in. So they shouldn't really have too many errors. I will tell you that pretty much every book you read, you'll find at least one or two typos because it, it's it's not all automated. It's still humans with eyes and hands working on it. And Jen, you probably know we have a lot of, you have an editor, a copy editor, a cold reader, a proofreader. We have lots of eyes on your pages. So, you know, there is still human error, which is okay by me. I, I, I don't want to be replaced by some AI robot, at least not for another 10 years. So, um, <laughs> But well, yeah. you know, that the whole team thing, that's my favorite story to tell because people will come up to me and tell me that I have a typo in people I want to punch in the throat. And I'm just like, yeah, I know. And I was like, it's fine. And I said, but you know what could have happened? It's <laughs> like, you know what could have happened? I'm like, in spending the holidays, when we did spending the holidays with people I want to punch in the throat, it, you and I had gone through it each probably, I don't know, 10 times. Then it went through all the other people it goes through. And then it was that final, who's the final person? Li- line editor maybe? or something? What's the final, uh, final? Copy editor. Copy editor. Copy editor. They all work together. Copy editor, but yeah. Yeah. So it was like the final, final person. And she sent me an email and she, and you know, when you're called people, I'm punching the throat. I think people are a little nervous of you. And so she sent me this really nice email kind of complimenting the whole book and that kind of thing. And she's like, I just, I I just have a real quick question about one area. You said something about it was the day after Christmas, December 24th. I was like, what? And she wrote, and she said, yeah, you wrote uh, December 24th, the day after Christmas. She's like, is that a joke? I'm not getting the joke if that's a joke, but I, and I was like, no, that's wrong. That's a hundred percent wrong. Missed it, yeah, yeah, and we had all missed it, and so I was like, "You give it a raise," because oh my gosh, no, this. But she's like, "Well, I didn't want to correct your joke if it was a joke." I was like, "It's not. That is a huge error. My fault. I'm sorry." I think you know, editors like me work on a more macro level concept, and yes, we do change of phrase, we tweak words, and things like that with you. We move paragraphs around. We we come up with you know the strongest structure. But then when my colleagues who are copy editors take it over, they're on that micro level, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure every comma's in, making sure that, you know, you have quotation marks where they're supposed to be and not where they're not supposed to be. You know, they are what clean up the book afterwards after you and I have like taken a hatchet to it 17 times and making sure that, oh, wait, you, you, you refer to this in chapter two, but it's not in chapter two right now. So, you know, they're really essential to the process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just like, I said, so a typo is no big deal. I almost had a huge major error. So this is fine. I don't care about my typos. Right, It'll right, be right. fine. Okay. So now is your whole job reading? Do you get to read every day, all day? Well, I will tell you that a fiction editor reads a lot more than a nonfiction editor. So a fiction editor usually gets a full novel submitted to them. Or if it's an already published novelist, they might get half to three quarters with a summary of what the conclusion is going to be. If it's something that's really great or the author has been published and is known. So they're really reading a ton. For nonfiction, I'm not often getting a completed manuscript. Sometimes, but more likely, I'm getting an outline, which can be 20 to 50 pages, usually 60 pages, which talks about an overview of the book 
some sample pages, a bio on the author, uh, and why it's important or relevant, and why you know why should we care? Essentially, that's that's what a proposal for nonfiction looks like. If it's a cookbook, it's, you know, some sample recipes and uh, a, a re- an overall recipe list and things like that. So, you know, from there, what you're trying to do as the author and or the agent is pique my interest and to say, you know, again, there's so many books out there. There's so much material that's free online. You know, why do we need a book on this? And why is that the person to write this book? Why, you know, Jen Man, why should you talk to me about midlife crises? Well, you've had one, you, you know, you get it. You are in a community that where people talk about the stuff that's going on during midlife. It makes sense for you to write this. Oh, and I happen to like your style. I like the tone. I like that it's not a very straight, serious book. You know, this is for someone who wants to kind of get a laugh while they're actually learning something while they're making connections. So, oh, that feels kind of original and new and different. So, you know, I, again, I'm using you as my example, but that's the criteria that went into why I considered this. Now, again, your book came about from a blog post, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. submitted by your agent. And the reason it was so interesting, and you had, you had self-published one, two, maybe more books after you and I worked together, mm-hmm. more people I want to punch in the throat books. So you were kind of doing your thing. But what was interesting to me about your blog post is it was very different from your usual thing, right? Where it was like quippy, sarcastic, biting, funny, you know, taking people to task, you know, no bullshit. That was your thing, right? Mm -hmm. But this was really open, honest, vulnerable, raw, I would even use like that word. And, you know, you were speaking truth, but in a in a way that was very different for you. And I was looking at all of those responses of which there were tons, like more than I think anything you'd posted Uh because it was so real and vulnerable. And when I saw that, that was attractive to me as a book idea because we've done, you know, there's a lot of people I want to punch in the throat. It was great. It sold it. But here's, here's a pivot for Jen. Here's something else that she's touching on in a way that's real and going deeper for you. Right. Uh So we kind of took that idea of like that raw and real and we combined it with sort of the pithiness and, you know, no BS and, and, and humor of the previous collections to get here. So I think it's, again, as an editor, you're looking for, you know, the, the most interesting story idea compelling the right person to be behind that idea. And that combination ultimately results, you hope, in books that people can use and people want uh, for various reasons. Well, and what I've always heard with nonfiction is that it's important to have a platform. Is that true? It is. I mean, it's super helpful from the book publisher's perspective, from the editor. You know, if it would be a lot harder for you to get your book published with me if you didn't have your online following, if you weren't established in that space. And that's tough and it's unfortunate. But, you know, I encourage people to just find that platform to break through on. It doesn't have to be a million listeners or followers. You know, that that would be nice, but it's not always the case. If your writing and ideas are strong enough, the platform can be a little bit smaller, but it does need to be something. You need to be established, whether you're a teacher, a professor, write one article, get one thing published, start one blog. You know, it's just something that at least gives you a little traction 
more in the nonfiction space, at least, uh, that will help you. But I think it also probably helps with fiction, but it does help you. There really is that competition, unless you're talking about self-publishing, which is, which is a different story, which you obviously can speak more to than I can. But you do a platform, something, just something helps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of what I've always heard that like the fiction and maybe it's because you are doing a proposal versus like a whole manuscript or something, because like the, you know, the proposal, half the proposal for is who, who are you and why are you the, why are you the expert on this? You know? And it's like, and if you don't have a proven this platform already and saying like, well, I'm already the expert on this because people follow me or whatever. So I think that makes, makes makes a big difference. And I think, like expert can be a, a dangerous word right. because, you know, yes, if you went to Stanford and you've been practicing medicine for 40 years and you came up with a cure for something, you're probably an expert. But, you know, <laughs> most other people, you know, I don't know that they be call themselves an expert, but they're very much learned in their field and they they can share the knowledge that they've learned with you. So I think, you know, I wouldn't say you're an expert necessarily, but you're incredibly well-versed in the areas that you travel in your online communities. So, yes. yes. Yeah. No, no. I Yeah. Let's be very clear. I was not calling myself an expert. So. <laughs> not an expert. Yeah, I'm know. an expert in yelling at my kids and scaring my authors, but other than that, I'm no expert. Exactly. I, yes. I'm an expert at, you know, cussing people out, but that's about it. So right now, I know, I know we're, I know you're very excited about Midlife Bites coming out. I know that's probably the one that's right at the forefront of your mind, but what other books do you have coming out that you're excited about? So the one that I'm really excited about that's coming out just before yours on November 30th is Mel Brooks's memoir called All About Me, My Remarkable Life in Show Business. And that has been just such a treat to work with someone who legit is a legend who legit is an expert in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give that to Mel Brooks. He is an expert. And he just celebrated his 95th birthday in June. And it's um, probably the highlight of my career has been getting on the phone with Mel Brooks always at night because he's a night owl. He stays up till three in the morning and he's in LA and I'm in New York time. So getting on the phone with him at night and making him laugh. If you can make him laugh, that's kind of like, you know, home run. And um, so it's been so nice to bring his remarkable and huge life to the page, which there's been so much. And he is so incredible. His memory is so incredible. And that started off, you know, we talked about ghostwriters and collaborators. Originally, the challenge there was finding someone that Mel actually wanted to work with. And I probably brought at least 20 different people to him that he shot down. And then he landed on someone who was great. And a month and a half later, I said, okay, so here's how we're going to work. And we're going to do all this. And we're going to get all this set up. And here's our protocol. Month and a half later, COVID hit. And he said, nah, change my mind. I'm going to write it myself. And he wrote every word of it himself. He all during COVID. And he delivered uh, 13 months later, he delivered a full manuscript to me. And he's like, okay, we're done. And I was like, (laughs) and it's very hard to tell Mel Brooks who has final approval over all of his films. You're not quite done. And I said, 80% done. Now we got to go put the polish on. And so we worked, you know, that was, um, 
he was someone who was not used to taking orders, not used to having collaborative, uh, you know, he is the guy who was always in charge of his stuff and mm-hmm. had final say. And so I said, here's the deal. My job is not to be funny on the page. My job isn't to tell the jokes. It's not to tell your story. That's your job. My job is to show you what's missing and what people need to know more of. So I'm going to do my job. I'm going to give you all of my notes and you're probably going to throw most of them out the window. But if you take a couple, I will have done my job. And once I told him that, we were good and we have a great working relationship. And he took he took more than half. So I'll give him, you know, there's still stuff that I was like, Mel, what do I have to do to get you to cut this paragraph? And he'd be like, Pamela, it's not going to happen. Let it go. And I would just, <laughs> you know, he was not scared of me. He told me he loved me and I loved him too. So we had a really great time doing that. And it's such a treat. I cannot wait to share it with everybody. It comes out November 30th. So that is is really a fun one. I have another book coming out uh, sort of on the other end of the spectrum a little bit. It's in the celebrity space called Out of the Corner. And it is Jennifer Gray's memoir, who played Baby on Dirty Dancing. And if you remember the famous line, Patrick Swayze says, nobody puts baby in the corner. So baby is now 61 years old, I think. And it's this incredible. So I, I was, I think, 18 when that movie came out. And I saw it like everybody else a million times in the theater. And, you know, it's this great story. And Jennifer's story parallels it about someone who was kind of other. She wasn't always the ingenue. She wasn't always the perfect girl who got the guy, but somebody saw something in her and she saw something in herself and she rose to the occasion. And that movie kind of, you know, she became, it was supposed to be the small budget, nothing film that nobody would ever see. And it was overnight, it it changed her life. And then, and then after she couldn't really get work and she decided she had to alter her appearance. You know, baby was a Jewish girl and Jewish looking and she kind of didn't have a perfect nose. So she got one and then two nose jobs and then no one could recognize her and she couldn't get work. And it was crazy. No, I don't know that that now it's so commonplace like with Kardashians and everyone else that altering your appearance is almost like par for the course. And, oh, you look like a completely different person, Kylie Jenner, but that's okay. We accept Uh you because you have a lip kit. Back then it wasn't quite the norm. And it it really messed with her psyche, her identity, her career. And, you know, as she grew older and came into her own, this book really explores, you know, uh, her life as a woman, sexuality, you know, being attractive to yourself, to others, and everything about that. A really, really interesting memoir. And that is out for Mother's Day um, next May 2022. So those are a couple of things that I'm excited about. Yeah. Well, I when you were talking about Jennifer Grey, I remembered that um, there's a there's like some sort of documentary on Netflix. I think it's a documentary series where they go behind the scenes of like popular movies, and Dirty Dancing is one of them. And we watched it the other night, and it's really you're like how low budget it was is crazy, and like how it just broke out is crazy. And she yeah. was she was this like international superstar. And then I remember when she had the surgery, and then I saw her in, like in a cover of a magazine or something, and I was like. Who is that? And even I still don't recognize her sometimes. So that's it breaks my heart yeah. to know that 
you know, that, that changed so much for her. That's terrible. Well, what was pretty cool is she won Dancing with the Stars. I forget which season, but she kind of came back and had her dancing moment, which I love. And yes. they're actually making Dirty Dancing 2 with her. I'm not sure what her role is going to be in all of it, but she's involved in it. And it's uh, the same production company. So, yeah, it's something fun to look forward to. Yes. Oh, very good. I love that. And then what are you reading for fun? Because surely you're always got something. What's on the bedside table? Right now I'm reading Crying in H Mart, which is a memoir by a Korean American, a young Korean American woman. It's about her mother who dies of cancer and her kind of fraught relationship with her and coming home to take care of her. And it's really quite good. It's been on the bestseller list for the last couple of weeks or months, and I'm really enjoying it. I haven't heard of that one. I'm going to write that one down. Mm-hmm. Crying so H Mart. Yeah, H Mart uh, is a chain of Asian supermarkets, and mm-hmm. it's a lot about food. It's all about a lot about Korean food and tradition. And I believe her father was American, her mother was Korean. Um, so it was, it's really kind of a fun and uh, interesting read right now. So I've really enjoyed that. Fiction wise, recently, I think every a lot of people have read it, which I really love was The Vanishing Half. Uh-huh. Have you read that? Yes, that's been really good. Yeah, so, that one was yeah. great. But yeah, right now I'm doing a lot of editing and reading of my own projects. So I'm not I was going to say, like, does it feel relaxing to read, or does it feel like work? Fiction does because <laughs> I never have to edit it. So I read mostly fiction, uh-huh. and I I tend to like. And I've actually, I listen to the first. I never listen to books. I always read them, and I never read electronically. I always read like finished books, printed books. But I read the first book that I listened to was Michelle Obama's, which Mm -hmm. was amazing that she narrated. And now I am into them. Like whenever I go on long drives, I'm reading some like thriller mystery called Sanatorium, which is I'm kind of enjoying like a British voiceover. So yeah, I I think I like to read more suspense and thriller type stuff or not read, but listen to more suspense thriller type stuff. Keeps you engaged or something. It does. And then I tend to like more, and when it comes to fiction, I like more historical. I never like like contemporary, you know, contemporary wealthy family type stuff. It's like, uh, where you don't like anybody. Like, I know I'm the only one who never liked The Corrections by Jonathan Franz. And I just was like, I hate everybody. I wish they all die. So, (laughs) but I have to, I guess I have to care about the characters and at least one or two of them, you kind of have to root for them. And I like dark stuff. I really like dark stuff, but uh, yeah, it's um, I'm I'm sure your, your listeners have a ton of stuff that they're liking, but uh, it ranges. So it's all over the place, but all good. Yeah. No, I'm always kind of all, all over the place. The thing with the suspense stuff, though, we got into that whole, that unreliable narrator. And so mm-hmm. I I can't, I can't care about them. Like, that's my whole thing is I can never care. Oh my gosh, she's a drunk. Who knows what's going on? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I know. That's right. I'd rather have the big rich family saga where at least I know why I hate yeah, them. That's true. <laughs> so. that's true. Although I've had that with nonfiction where I've said to an author, I'm like, you're coming across as an unreliable narrator. Stop telling people you don't remember things. Like, you can't do that in nonfiction because yeah. that's that's a problem. So I don't really remember, but dot, dot, dot. And it's like, no, 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 no. Those words can't be on the page. So I think, yeah. as I recall, <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful with that. Well, Legal doesn't like this that. Way. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. Right All now. right. Well, 
This was so much fun. I had a great time chatting with you. I think I could talk about books all day and and this whole world. I'm so I'm so glad that I'm in this world. So and thank you for coming on today. So be sure to check out all the books that Pamela mentioned today. There was Empty Mansions. There was the Mel Brooks All About Me and the Jennifer Gray book, which is called I can't read this very well. Do you, can you tell me out of the corner? Out of the corner, of course, because baby's in the corner. Out of the corner. So please go check all those books out. If you like to read, Pamela's a great source of of material. So she's not leading you wrong, I promise. But thank you for coming on the show, Pamela. This was a really good time. And thank you for all your help with Midlife Bites. (laughs) This was fun and a treat, and I'm glad to be of service. Okay. And I'll be looking for that champagne. So thanks again, everybody, for, for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening and subscribing to No Pants Required with Jen Mann. Don't forget to follow me on social media and subscribe to my newsletter at jenmanwrites.com. My newest book, Midlife Bites, Anyone Else Falling Apart or Is It Just Me? will be out in January, but it's available for pre-order everywhere books are sold.